This is episode number 12 of the podcast series Guitar Talk. Today's guest is internationally renowned classical guitarist, university teacher, composer and book author David Leisner. As always, your host is Hamburg-based guitarist Heiko Ossig. Enjoy the conversation with David Leisner. Hi, David. I would like to Hi. welcome you to my guitar talk and thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast series and for taking the time to talk to me today. First of thank all, you. and that's a question I ask all of my guests, how did you come in contact with the guitar? What was your motivation to start playing the guitar? Failure at the violin. Okay. <laughs> When I was nine, nine or nine and a half years old, uh, my mother wanted me to play violin terribly. So I reluctantly took up the violin. Well, I shouldn't say reluctantly. I loved to listen to the violin hmm. when I was much younger. Um, and I took it up and I was just terrible at it. And I was sawing away at Mary Had a Little Lamb and it just sounded okay. god awful. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave up on that. And, you know, what drew me to the guitar really was not uh, anything uh, romantic or, uh, or uh, you know, fairy tale like It was really more practical. Uh, we, we were not wealthy people. The guitar was an instrument that could be uh, rented or bought fairly cheaply. Mm. Um, And I liked the instrument. I had no idea that it would be the instrument of my choice for the rest of my life. Mm. But uh, we rented uh, an instrument on the way to buying one. And, uh, and I took up folk guitar in the beginning and, uh, and went from there. Okay. And um, you grew up at the time when the electric guitar developed as a major instrument in rock music. Uh, Have you ever been in contact with with electric guitar at that time? Um, as a listener, yes. Okay. Uh, although I must confess, the electric guitar wasn't the sound that I was most attracted to. Mm. Um, I liked the jazz electric guitarists more than the rock electric guitarists. Mm. I was much more attracted in popular music to the sort of folk rock kind of style of, you know, James Taylor, J Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero, mm. that sort of crowd rather than, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones or, you know, what, whatever Led Zeppelin or whoever was popular at the time. Mm. Um, so uh, for me, the electric guitar was a little more foreign. Um, I, I do remember admiring Carlos Santana because okay. of his sound. I liked Santana's yeah. sound a lot. Um, but otherwise, the sound of the, the uh, acoustic instrument was much more my, my thing. It, it, it really attracted me. Mm. You started playing guitar mainly self-taught at a very high level early. What mm. memories do you have of your student days and What do you associate with the teaching personalities that you were in contact with for a short period of time? For example, John Duarte. Yes, well, John Duarte was my first uh, important teacher and really the one that I studied with the longest, which is to say nine months. Okay. <laughs> uh, I went to, to uh, London to study with him. Um, and... Uh, before him, I had studied with the, the teacher who taught me folk guitar in a class and then she took me on as a private student and introduced me when I was 13 to classical music. Uh, was a, I got a late start. Um, she was an incredible teacher in terms of teaching me basic philosophy about life and music making. Mm. Uh, but after a half a year uh, of occasional private lessons on classical guitar, she said, you're beyond me now. You have to go out to the world and find someone else. Yeah. Uh, at that point, I took some uh, flamenco lessons for a while. Um, then I took some lessons with a man named Theodore Norman, 
uh, who is um, mostly forgotten now. He, he was actually a violinist um, who, and a composer who had studied the Schoenberg 12-tone system and um, uh, was an amateur guitarist at first and then became rather well-known in the guitar world with some books that G. Shermer put out and were very popular for a while. And I studied with him very briefly uh, in L.A. And then the next teacher that I had, Los Angeles was where I grew up. And the next teacher I had was John Duart, um, who was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. He, um, his lessons with him were marathon lessons. They would go on for two and a half hours. <laughs> Um, of which there was about an hour of content and the rest was just gabbing uh, about music and the guitar world and he would tell me all kinds of stories because he knew absolutely everybody in the guitar world. Um, he was uh, a major introduction for me to, to the world of the guitar uh, and um, taught me a lot about um, uh, a, a methodical approach to technique, mm. uh, which I took with me and uh, as I developed my own ideas about technique. So he was very, very important to, to me. Um, the, other, the other couple of people that I studied with for a while um, were David Starobin, who I studied with for six weeks at a mm. summer music festival in Maine. Mm. Um, David was a wonderful teacher and very generous with his time and uh, I worked on some major repertoire with him. Um, and the other teacher that I worked with uh, when I went uh, to, uh, to college, my freshman year at college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, um, I had been directed by Theodore Norman, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, to go study with one of two people. And the one that I ended up with was a... Uh, a violist in the Boston Symphony Orchestra named Robert Carroll. Um, and Bob Carroll was an amateur guitarist, um, but serious and um, very, very nice teacher for it, particularly for musical things, of course. So what I actually remember, besides the lesson being lessons being wonderfully musical and and uh, eye and ear opening uh, was that I I actually hitchhiked uh, the for the two hours to get from my school in the middle of Connecticut to Boston, mm -hmm. uh, and I did it I think every other week or once a month or something for a while. Mm -hmm. So that was that was kind of fun and interesting. Nobody could do that nowadays, but it was a different time. Yeah. You went on to win competitions, including the Toronto and the Geneva guitar competitions. Um, when you didn't, think I, didn't win, I didn't win first prize in either one, but I did well in both. I, I tied for second in the first Toronto one with Manuel Barroco, and in Geneva uh, I was I got the silver medal, which was just under uh, Marco De Santi, who won okay. the. Mm. I think actually it was. I think they did not award a first prize that year. I think they awarded him second prize and me whatever the next level yeah. was. It wasn't third. I don't know what they called it. Silver medal, I think they called it. Okay. When you think back to that time, what what was the importance of uh, those competitions for you? Well, you know, competitions. I mean, they're very, they're very, they're wonderful if you if you do well in them because they help promote your career, especially at that time. At this particular moment in time, I think they they do less for your career unless you win one of the very top competitions because there are so many of them now. In 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 the, my era back then, it, there were not so many. It's certainly not so many of international. Um, Uh, title mm. and um, if you won one of them or placed in one of them it, it was a major thing for your career mm. uh, Toronto especially helped launch my career mm. um, but you know competitions um, are very dangerous things and I uh, I worry about people who who do a lot of them and there are mm. a number of people who do a lot of them um, they they get um, kind of sucked into 
competition for competition's sake uh, and forget the real purpose of making music. Mm. Um, uh, so I, I saw that from the start and uh, once I did well in those two competitions, I didn't want to or need to do much more than that. I think I tried a couple more um, and did okay in them, but uh, they, I could see this wasn't, this wasn't what I wanted uh, mm. in, my, in my career. And so I was grateful that I did as well as I did in those competitions. And then I, I moved on quickly from it. Mm. David, when we talk about your career, we have to mention the 12 years between 1984 and 1996. During that time, you suffered from the symptoms of focal dystonia. Correct. And you overcame this disease, which often means the end of the career for many musicians. And um, a few years ago, you published an important book, Playing with Ease, about the possible injuries of music musicians in general and guitarists in particular. Um, please tell us about the illness and the path you took to get rid of this disease sure. or this crisis. Yes. Well, um, yeah, if I can make what's a very, very long story as short as I can. Yeah. Uh, I at first went to many people for a number of years, many different practitioners of different sorts. I went to guitar person, Pat O'Brien, I went to a chiropractor and shiatsu and various things and Western doctors and Eastern practitioners and so on and so forth, um, all of whom said they would be able to help me and none of whom did. Mm. Uh, the last one I went to actually made me worse. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, at that point, I stopped trying to find the answers externally. Uh, and tried to find them internally. Mm. Um, so for a while I did nothing. And I actually, for a, for a while, I was playing around the early 90s, 1990s, I was playing with two fingers, my thumb okay. and index finger. Mm. Uh, it was, in my case, my ring finger that was the main yeah. culprit for the dystonia, uh, which is not always the case, but in my case it was. And um, um, I was playing with, I found I could play a lot of repertoire with two fingers, even very difficult repertoire. And I managed to play pieces like the Paganini Grand Sonata and the Richard Rodney Bennett Sonata with two fingers, you know, sometimes having to rearrange arpeggios in different mm. order, but that sort of thing. But I uh, was able to do a, an amazing amount of repertoire with this and I, was thrilled just to be able to play again because I hadn't really played for all those years. Mm. Um, but then in the meantime, I started uh, to investigate an idea, um, the seed of which uh, was uh, gotten from a colleague of mine at the time at the New England Conservatory, where I commuted for many years. Uh, Neil Anderson was teaching there at the time, and he was experimenting with some ideas about large muscles and was showing a student in a class uh, about some very broad ideas about large muscles. And um, I just, I thought to myself as I was watching this, this might have something to do with me and my focal dystonia. Mm. And I took it home and I started experimenting with this very simple idea. Um, and all of a sudden I was able to to use the ring finger a little bit that I hadn't used in so many years, eight mm. years, I think, at that point. Um, a very emotional moment, as you can imagine, I'm sure. And um, from that point on, uh, it was a steady uphill, or I should say upward uh, progress Uh, to uh, to cure, because um, while Neil had um, uh, found the seed of an idea, mm. uh, he didn't get to develop them for very long because he actually ended up not teaching. He 
went into the world of finance and made some real money. Okay. <laughs> good for him. Yeah, good. <laughs> good for him is right. So um, meanwhile, uh, I took the ball and ran with it and developed these ideas. And my instinct for these kinds of issues has always been very, very good, actually. Um, uh, despite the fact that I got myself into trouble here, uh, otherwise my my technique um, was actually anatomically very um, very sound, mm. uh, as was pr proven by the number of people that I went to in the time that I was seeking help. They all looked at my technique and said, "Your technique is anatomically perfect." So. You know, they, that's why they couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I tried to f help myself figure out what was wrong. And with this idea of using large muscles, um, it became more and more nuanced as I went along. And I became smarter and smarter about applying those ideas to playing the instrument um, to the point where gradually my fingers got better and better. My middle finger was involved a little bit. My my uh, little my um, little finger, pinky finger, was also involved almost as much as the ring finger. Okay. Um, and one by one, they got better. First the middle finger, then the pinky, and finally the ring finger. And it took me four years. Yeah. So over the course of four years, uh, as I say, it was steady upward progress, uh, absolutely steady. There wasn't even, as it usually is with people, a kind of an up and down progress. It, it, it just, my instinct just led me on the right path from beginning to end. I was very, very, very fortunate and grateful. Mm -hmm. So by the time 1996 was there, the summer of 96, I remember that I realized, oh my God, I'm playing normally again. There's no focal dystonia left in my hand. Yeah. And uh, knocking on wood, it has remained the same ever since 1996. Yeah, great. Mm. Um, what would be your simple advice for young guitarists who want to avoid injuries? Um, <laughs> well, the simple one. To put it crassly, I would say, please read my book. Yeah, okay. That's a good, <laughs> because, uh, good answer. <laughs> because my book is is basically about preventing injury. It, yeah. That is what it's about. It's There's only one chapter, one of the seven chapters, the fifth chapter, is devoted to to uh, the issue of large muscles, and which is also the issue of curing focal dystonia. Mm. But using large muscles... Uh, in general for any player uh, is, in my opinion, a way to prevent injury of any kind, not just focal dystonia. Mm. And if you also take into account the other things that I talk about in the book, which have to do with alignment and flexibility and um, uh, correct use of the muscles mm. and the joints of the body and... Um, Sitting position relaxed yes alignment mm. and and a relaxed um approach to playing the instrument those things together with the use of the large muscles basically make you in my opinion injury proof or virtually injury proof mm. injuries are not a necessity of playing an instrument not at all in my opinion it's just you know people talk about uh, overuse syndrome in my opinion, that's a misnomer. It's almost never overuse. It's misuse. Mm. So when people get an injury, they have been misusing their body in some way. And it's just a matter at that point, once you're injured, of figuring out what caused this and how to make it better and how to make it natural and allow the body to, to do what it naturally wants to do. Mm. Um, yeah, talking about your book, I, I, of course, I know the book, I read it, and uh, I can really strongly recommend it to anybody who is a musician and, and for guitarists in, in particular. Thank you. And <clears throat> David, you are a teacher at the Manhattan School of Music since many years. Um, what yes. were your experiences as a university teacher, and where do you put an emphasis on in your teaching? 
Well, of course, this is uh, this is a main uh, focus of my teaching because uh, what's important to me uh, to convey to my students is uh, how to be a healthy person. Mm. Uh, a healthy guitarist also means being a healthy person. So that means a lot of things. That means being in good physical shape, you know, not just uh, going without exercise. Exercise is important for most of us, almost all of us, mm. if not all of us. I think there are some people that maybe can get away without exercise. There are a handful of people like that probably in the world, but most of us need exercise. And that's important to, to have our bodies in good shape. And then how to use those bodies in a natural way, in a way that, that uh, prevents injury and promotes happiness as a player and as a human being. Um, so that's an essential part of my teaching, as well as um, respecting, um, particularly with the best composers, respecting what's on the page and, um, and seeing what's on the page and understanding what's on the page, uh, both from a musical point of view, from a historical point of view, if it's older music, um, and really becoming intimate with not just the notes on the page, but all the markings and all the background of pieces that we play. Mm. And uh, once we understand what, the, what we think the composer intended, then to bring that to life, which sometimes means, in the end, ignoring what's on the page. Um, I mean, most of the time we should be obeying what's there, especially for the best composers. Um, but sometimes we need to change things. Mm. Uh, and how do you change them? When do you change them? That's a process of trial and error or studying with a teacher who perhaps you respect, who you feel knows better than you. Um, the answer to these kinds of questions. Um, because the, um, the, the link to music is a, is, a, is a living one, whether the music has been written yesterday or 300 years ago, uh, there's a living link. It has to be because we are the ones who bring it to life today. <laughs> it's, it's on the page and that allows many other people to play that music for a long time. But what allows the music to come alive in terms of sound is what you do with it right now. Mm. And so how you approach that um, is a living thing. And, and the best example of that um, kind of relationship with the page is what happens when you work with a composer who's written the piece that you're playing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when, for example, I worked with Alberto Ginastera on his uh, sonata, uh, the piece... I mean, I already had a very good sense of the piece. This was, you know, back in the, this was in Geneva when I competed there, mm. it was in 1981, um, when hardly anybody was playing the piece. And I, even so, I had a very good idea of the piece, but there, the, the contact with the composer was absolutely invaluable. Okay. And it was one of the many things that taught me what I'm telling you about now, that when you, interact with the composer. The music comes to life more than it does when it's just on the page because you're getting the information from the horse's mouth. Yeah. You're getting the information, the feeling or the look in the eye or the physical gesture that they make uh, or calling your attention to a marking that was there, whatever it is, that brings the piece more alive. And that interaction with the composer is... Uh, not only a lively one, but also can be a malleable one. So, mm -hmm. for instance, I'm, I'm going on here a little bit, but I think these are kind of important answers to your question. For instance, um, I worked a tremendous amount with the composer David Del Tredici. Uh, David 
I commissioned a piece from David. Um, I thought I was going to get a 10 to 12 minute piece and instead got a 35 minute masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly counterpoint. <laughs> okay. Quite amazing. Facts of Life is a remarkable piece by Del Tredici, who's one of the great living American composers. And uh, David was remarkable in that, you know, he's such a master at composition, but he was open to my comments about his guitar piece because for him the guitar was a quote-unquote weird instrument, as he mm. called it, um, and, you know, not the kind of instrument he typically wrote for. So there was a lot of back and forth about his piece. I mean, we, we worked on it for months in person and on the phone, um, back and forth, back and forth. He would write something and I would play it for him and I'd say, I have a problem with this and that and this doesn't sound good and this sounds great, but it doesn't work with that. And, and he said, yeah, keep trying on this. And, you know, <laughs> I don't like that idea so much. Or I'd say, oh, that's a great idea. I love that. And we change it. Hmm. So there was a, a, a give and take there that uh, made me understand the, the living organism of a piece of music. Hmm. This is really what music is. It is not a dead thing on the page. It is a thing that is living hmm. and can especially comes to life. When you work with a composer and when you do that, you understand the real life of the piece. And then you can apply that to other pieces of music, new and old, and you, you understand the real, uh, the real connection with music. All of which is to say, this is the kind of thing that I love to give my students, love to pass on to my students. This is the kind of world that I want to see them enter into mm. rather than what guitarists tend have tended over the years to to enter into which is a very narrow world that has to do a lot with notes on the page and technique and fast and loud and you know all those things which are all wonderful but they don't reflect the larger world of music. Mm. You played numerous concerts as uh, as a soloist, and um, but always um, played a lot of chamber music too. That's right. What is the importance of the guitar and chamber music for you? Well, it, that's a perfect segue from what we were just speaking about because, you know, one of the things that uh, I have insisted on over the years at the Manhattan School of Music is that our chamber music program be um, oriented towards playing with other instruments, not just guitarists. Mm. Um, guitar ensembles are great, but um, because guitarists tend to be much less experienced in the world of chamber music, and therefore less experienced in the larger world of music outside of the guitar, um, I think it's extremely important for guitarists to go out and find opportunities with other instrumentalists or singers to play. Mm. And so um, I have you know, made sure that we've kept a requirement of almost all the semesters that uh, a student is there for chamber music. And I do my best to get the students Uh, when I have, I mean, there are three other teachers there, so I'm not the only one with this, with this point of view, and they all agree with me. So, but I've been kind of pushing this a lot, and um, uh, I just feel it's very important for guitarists to play with other instrumentalists and singers. First of all, there's a lot of repertoire for for chamber music with guitar. A huge amount of it, it needs to be played. Um, but also for the guitarists, they learn, we learn so much when we play with other people, mm. non-guitarists. I mean, that's always been my experience. Whenever I've worked with a non-guitarist, I learn so much. I mean, I learn a lot when I play with another guitarist too. 
um, you know, uh, but uh, but when I when I work with another instrumentalist or singer, it takes me to a new level. Sure. Mm-hmm. It, it lifts me up, mm-hmm. and it expands me, and that's what I feel is very important for guitarists to do to expand their horizons mm. to the world of music outside of the guitar mm. it's very important and as a composer i've also written a lot of music for guitar with other instruments and my yeah. voice and the idea was partly i mean that was partly just my instinct but partly also to get guitarists to play with other people mm. When you look at the education of young guitarists um, at conservatories and universities today, how do you rate it? Is it still up to date? I mean, concerning uh, uh, regarding repertoire and, and so on. If you were to design a curriculum for guitarists, what do you think should be given greater consideration? Hmm. Well, first of all, I have to say that it, it, we have come a long way since when I started out. A yeah. long way. Um, and I've seen such wonderful work by so many people creating departments, guitar departments that are very, very fine. They have a wonderful curriculum and a wonderful sense of direction mm. and they, they teach their students marvelous things. I mean, at the same time, I also bemoan the fact that Uh, students are still they they haven't gotten as broad as I would have expected them to be mm. by this point in my life um, and that's disappointing so I would um, encourage first of all any curriculum that that um, recommends repertoire that is not just the tried and true, and the recognized popular pieces, not to mention, of course, masterpieces for the guitar mm. and and in guitar chamber music, but also adventure venture forth into to uh, other music that's that's less well traveled. I mean, there's so much music out there that's very, very fine, if not great. Mm. And so much of it is not being played because students tend to play the same things over and over again. They're like sheep. They copy what other people play. There are certain pieces that come in and out of popularity. Um, and some of them are great pieces. Uh, and some of them are not great pieces. Mm. But whichever, whichever they are, it's wonderful that all these pieces are being performed, but there's so many other things. I mean, for example, okay, in the 19th century music area where I've been uh, instrumental, so to speak, in, in calling attention to some underrated, uh, underrecognized composers, Merz and Maciek, uh, for example, mm. uh, early on, uh, I called attention to these composers, and for a long time, nobody paid attention to Merz. Now they're, they're, they're playing a lot of merits. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of pieces they're not playing of merits. And that's because some people play certain pieces, including myself, and people play those pieces, but they don't venture into other pieces. You know, for example, in my own study of merits, there's lots of pieces that I would love to p play and record mm. <laughs> if I had the time, if I have the The, the space in my life to do it. I haven't been able to get to it, but other people can take up the, <laughs> the, the cause and, and play those other pieces. Maciek uh, is hardly played. I mean, he's played a little bit more now. Uh, my colleague David Steraben has also taken up uh, Maciek uh, and uh, has called an attention there, and I'm so grateful. And, and there were people like Massimo Agostinelli before us and Dana Chivers and Ag Agustin Maruri who, who recognized Merit's, uh, Maciek rather uh, before, before I did. Uh, but um, now people are beginning to know Maciek. There's a tremendous amount of repertoire there, some of which is 
not great, frankly, but much of which is fantastic. It's mm. great, and uh, for for me, the the great composers for the nineteenth century guitar are Mertz and Matieka. Sor was a wonderful composer, and Giuliani, wonderful composer. They wrote wonderful pieces. I'm not sure the best of them come up to the level of Mertz and Matieka. Mm. Uh, that's a you know I I, I I don't mean to be incendiary here. It, it, it it's and I don't mean to step on anybody's toes who adores Soro Giuliani, and mind you, Giuliani was on the first recording I ever made along mm. with Meritz. But um, uh, I just you know and again even Giuliani is another one. There's so much out there. Uh, people need to explore. There's a lot of good pieces of Giuliani that haven't been played mm. um, or not played much. Um, so my point is really, um, I, I don't really mean to downgrade any of the other composers, but I, I, I do mean to say that there ought to be room for more music that is played less often mm. that may be just as good and in sometimes even better than uh, the repertoire that is played all the time. Mm. Uh, I mean, just another example, the Soar Opus 7 of Mozart variations. That's a lovely piece. But why do we continue to play that piece when there are so many other Soar pieces mm. that, that um, are actually better and are not played nearly as often, you know, and, and Sora is somebody who's played already a lot, you mm. know. Um, so there's just no reason to keep playing the same repertoire. So I'm sorry, I'm very long-winded today, forgive me, but um, uh, you're asking me questions that are, are exciting exciting to me and uh, they ignite my, my imagination. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I feel that a curriculum, to come back to your question, a mm. curriculum that expands upon um, the, the um, tried and true accepted repertoire of guitar, as well as emphasizing the great pieces, the masterpieces of our literature, as well as including other pieces that may not be masterpieces, but may be um, uh, works that uh, are, uh, supply a well-roundedness to a program. Uh, you know, some of the more popular kinds of music uh, uh, of the sort that uh, Roland Dion's wrote, for example. Mm, yeah. That's lovely, Piazzolla. You know, those things are lovely. And if somebody wishes to focus on that in their playing, that's great. Mm -hmm. But I, I would hope that uh, they would be well aware of the pieces like the Britain Nocturnal and the Hens of Royal Winter Music and so on and so forth. Uh, Takemitsu, and uh, you know, I can, we can go on and on, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, making sure that um, students get a well-rounded understanding of uh, what's important in guitar history and the history of the literature, mm -hmm. that's very important. Now, I, I hope you don't uh, mind if I just say another thing, which is that in addition to the area of repertoire and curriculum, I also, also think it's extremely important um, to, um, well, actually two things, to work on theoretical work, um, which, for example, my colleague Mark Del Priora does beautifully at Manhattan School of Music. He has mm. several classes in music theory in, as related to the guitar. Um, and they're very, very important. Mm. Uh, and it's um, very important to have a good foundation in these areas. But equally important, if not maybe ultimately even a little more important, is my area of a physical understanding yeah. of how to play the instrument. Mm. And that needs to be, in my opinion, a very important basic part of any guitar program. Mm. Needs to be play, paid very careful attention to. Yeah. 
Let's briefly talk about the topic of practicing. Um, what does a practice uh, session look like for you? Uh, how do you structure a practice session? <laughs> nice question. Um, you know, by now it's become a very intuitive sort of thing. Mm. Um, and students ask me about it sometimes. Sometimes I talk about it without being asked, and sometimes we don't discuss it if I feel like they're doing a good job of practicing. Mm. But I guess, you know, now that you're making me think about it very specifically, um, I would say, first of all, it would be a very good idea to have a general idea of what you're going to accomplish mm. in your given practice session. A general idea. Say you're going to work on the, the first movement of such and such a piece. Um, and you should probably devote an entire practice session to the one movement if you're doing early work on that movement. Mm. Um, your practice session, first of all, should not be longer than an hour. Um, it should only last as long as your concentration and focus last. If that means that you lose focus and concentration after 20 minutes, then don't practice for longer than 20 minutes. Mm. If your concentration, you can build it up and see if you can get to 25 and 30 and so on and so forth from there. But don't go beyond the time where you lose focus and concentration. And whatever that amount of time is that you decide at this current time is my given practice time, And as I say, beyond an hour is not a good idea because then not only do your focus and concentration disappear, but also you do bad things to your body. You get mm. stuck. Um, and I, while I'm on that subject, should also say that within an hour, if you do an hour or even 45 minutes, there should be some point during that time when you get up and stretch, mm. take a break, get a glass of water, look at your email for two seconds. Just take a quick break, look out the window. <laughs> um, now, otherwise, if you're thinking ahead about, uh, say, an hour worth of practice, let's say you decide you want to work on the first movement of such and such a piece, um, what are you going to work on it? Are you going to work on technical issues, musical issues, and what kinds of issues in those areas? Um, and again, this can be very approximate. Because you just you want to set an approximate goal so you can aim for it and hopefully achieve it, um, but don't be stuck to that goal so much that you can't change your mind and be spontaneous in the middle of your practice session and do something different than what you decided. Because in the course of your practice, you may discover things that change your Uh, direction, your sense of, of purpose in the practice session. Mm. So I think setting a goal while being open to spontaneous change within that plan um, is very important, number one. Number two, I talk in my book at great length, there's a whole chapter about practicing. Uh, I talk about various kinds of practicing. Um, um, I talk about uh, not only things like uh, for performance tempos mm. to generally follow, um, but I also talk about the, issue, the more general issue of soul, what I call soul work versus analytical work. Um, and this is a kind of a basic philosophy I have towards practicing. Um, the soul work is the work that Uh, you do basically you're just reading through the piece and getting a sense of what the piece is about, how the piece feels in your hands, um, what the structure of the piece is, what the emotions are in the piece, what are the challenges of the piece, what's the soul of the piece. Mm -hmm. the, the soul work Uh, should occupy by far the smallest amount of your practice. If, if, if you are just playing through your piece over and over again, you are not doing effective practice. 
if you're playing through the piece to get a sense of the soul of the piece, the soul of the music, that's wonderful. You do that once, twice, three times maybe, and that's it. And by the time you're finished doing that soul work, so to speak, which is not even work, really, it's just kind of fun, <laughs> um, then you have a sense of what kind of nitty gritty work you need to do. And that's what I would call the analytical work, the work where you analyze what it is you need to do in order to get the piece to be to be able to play the piece better technically as well as musically. And of course, in the beginning, it has to be technical. You have to figure out some technical things first, although it's very important to me. This is why I think it's important to do the soul work first. Very important to have your musical goal in mind as you work on the technique. So if you are just working on technique for its own sake without a sense of the musical goal, that is not really technique in the profoundest sense. That's really mechanics. Mm. And mechanics is fine. Um, but technique is a loftier thing and uh, is more far-reaching mm. uh, and has more long-term effects. So if you want to have good technical work, you have to have your musical goals in mind, which you begin to have a sense of after the first soul work readings of the piece. And you, you work on things that are suggested by the soul work that occur to you need work technically. So for example, you might uh, work on fingerings, you mm -hmm. might work on, uh, but you are, but I wouldn't set the fingerings until you have a good idea of what your phrasing is like, or what your musical goals are like. If people tend to finger things too early, so leave the fingerings until you have a, a better sense of what the music is about, then you finger it and then you work on right hand issues, left hand issues. Uh, physical issues, relaxation issues, perhaps breathing issues, all kinds of things, whatever you, it, it, whatever is in your stable of repertoire to, to work on technique. And you do that, that kind of work, that should be most of your work. And when you do analytical work, you break it down into small bite-sized pieces. Uh, you don't play through the whole piece at once. You mm. you might uh, work backwards and start with the last four measures and then work on the four measures just before that and the four measures before that and then maybe run those 12 measures together forward. Mm. Um, that's a wonderful way of working. Um, when you work analytically, you're not working so much in terms of the logic of the music, but rather... Um, uh, cutting it up into little analytical bits so that you can fix the technical mm. problems and even the musical problems like crescendo, decrescendo, and so on. Does, that is a technical issue to do a, a precise crescendo, a precise decrescendo, or a, an organic retard or an organic accelerando. Um, these, uh, these things are, can be uh, part of your analytical work. And so once you've done this analytical work and you feel uh, you've done a nice amount of work on that. It may take up one practice session, it may take up 10 practice sessions. But whenever you're done with that for now and you feel like, okay, I've got the piece pretty much on my fingers now, you can either choose to leave it, put the piece aside for a day or a week or a month, whatever, and then you come back to it later. Or you can immediately return to, again, what I call the soul work. Um, whatever you do, once you've done the analytical work, whenever you next approach the piece, you go back to the soul work. You do the soul work again a little bit, because now that you've done your technical work, you've advanced it more in more detail, and now you might have some different ideas about what the piece is about. You, it may have evolved. You might have a different sense of the structure, a different sense of, of where the piece is heading or what the emotions of the piece are even. Mm. So whatever you find out in that soul work session, then you take back with you to the analytical work and you do that. And you do that for a while in the same kinds of ways, you know, maybe new ways. Um, and you go back and forth between the soul work and the analytical work, mm. making sure that when you work on one, 
you are divorcing it from the other, which is to say that when you do soul work, you do not look at anything analytical. And when you look at do this analytical work, you don't think about just playing through the piece and do the soul work. You are keeping them absolutely separate. Mm. But after a while of going back and forth between the two, keeping them totally separate, there is a place where naturally the two start to blend together. And eventually they become the same work. Mm. That's my philosophy about mm. how to practice a piece of music in general. David, you are an active performer and a, a composer of high reputation and an arranger. What is your current focus? Uh, well, I, I continue to do it all, and I will, as long as I'm able to, continue to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, I've been um, uh, all my whole career, my whole life, I've felt like I have my my being split between being a composer and a performer. Mm. Uh, and though I have, um, in most of my career, spent more of my time actually playing and performing, uh, half of the time I'm thinking about composing. So I mm. really feel absolutely 50-50, split down the middle, composer-performer. And uh, it's important to me to feed both sides of those things. So at the moment, um, well, I've, I've done a lot of recording over the pandemic, uh, and those recordings are coming out now. Uh, two recordings uh, just came out. Uh, one is my uh, arrangement for guitar of Die Schöne Müllerin by Schubert, mm. um, and it's with baritone Michael Kelly, who's a remarkable baritone. And we've worked on this interpretation for some years now, and I worked very, very hard on the arrangement. Um, trying to stay as, as faithful as possible to the original uh, while making it playable uh, on the guitar and sound mm. as if it was written for the guitar, which in many instances it really does sound like that. Mm. That album came out in um, October, and November saw the release of an album of my vocal chamber music compositions. Um, there's a short piece for, for baritone and guitar on it, Uh, there's a, the other pieces are longer. There's one for baritone and cello, uh, a half-hour cycle for voice and for soprano and piano, which originally was, by the way, a guitar piece. It's called Confiding. That was originally for soprano and guitar. But on the recording, for its first recording, even though it's almost 40 years old, the piece, <laughs> uh, I chose to have it done on piano. Um, and uh, the other pieces for tenor, violin, oboe, and piano. Um, so that album just came out in November. And uh, uh, about a year ago, I recorded my next solo album, which is an album of early 19th century music, uh, which includes Sor, Giuliani, Mertz, Rigondi, and Schultz, Leonard, Leonard Schultz. Mm. Um, and that album will be coming out in a few months. I think we're still in the middle of editing it. Um, so that's going on. But at the same time, uh, I'm really busy composition-wise. Um, last summer, I did the second of two commissions from a uh, guitarist in North Carolina, Rob Nathanson, who has a saxophone and guitar duo, has had one for many years, and has contributed a lot to that literature. He commissioned first a piece from me for soprano, violin, saxophones, and two guitars. Uh, and that piece didn't get its premiere last year because of COVID. Mm. Now he commissioned another piece from me for soprano sax and guitar, which I wrote early last summer. Uh, and both those pieces are about to get their premiere this March. And COVID, I don't think, is going to get in the way this time. So that uh, that is coming up. And then the, the really big news for me is that the rest of my summer, last summer, was taken up with writing a commission from Pepe Romero okay. for mm -hmm. a guitar concerto. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's, it's finished. Uh, everything's copied out, including the parts. Uh, Pepe loves it. The conductor loves it. They're going to premiere it uh, in September. So that's, uh, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Kind of very exciting news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Coming back to, to the question about the curriculum for guitarists, uh, do you think uh, young guitarists should be more involved in composing? And uh, second question, should improvisation play a bigger role in education of young guitarists? Wonderful questions. Wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. Yes to okay, all yes, of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I am so happy when a student comes to me with a piece that they wrote mm. and says, would you look at this? I, I'm so happy to look at it. You know, whether they're a really marvelous composer or whether they're just dabbling, it doesn't matter because the It's going back to what I was talking about earlier. The interaction between the player and the composer is so important. Well, when the composer is yourself and the player is yourself, you understand very well what those connections are. Or even better, when the composer is yourself and the players are other people, mm. you are on the other side of that equation. And it teaches you tremendous amounts of things about music making in general, as well as about your own musical personality. Mm. Um, there are have been a number of my students who have are, been very gifted uh, composers um, in their own right. One is João Luiz, uh, the half of the Brazil guitar duo, and uh, also a recent student was Gulli Björnsson. Icelandic player and composer. He's now, I think, considers himself more of a composer. Um, Gulli brought in pieces that he wrote early on and so exciting um, to work on that stuff with somebody who was just getting his beginnings, just bubbling, you know, as a, as a young composer. Mm. Uh, it's thrilling as a teacher, but I think it's absolutely essential that people explore the creative side of their music making personality. And, and I have to say also that that will illuminate the concept which a lot of musicians, particularly guitarists, aren't necessarily um, sympathetic towards, which is that what we do as guitarists, as performers, is recreative. It's not a creative endeavor. Mm. We are recreating what somebody else wrote. There are creative aspects to it, but we are not creating the piece. Mm. We are creating the piece when we write the piece. And there's a big difference. And I think students really understand that when they go through the act of actually writing the piece, and then they understand what true creation is. Mm. Uh, so that's very important. The idea of improvisation is really, I'm so glad you brought it up. I wish personally that I had more experience with improvisation. Mm. My own feeling for improvisation is I just don't do it well. I've never been good at it. Probably if I had been forced to do it early on, I would have developed something for it. Years ago when I was a student at Wesleyan, There was a great jazz saxophonist who was on the faculty there, Sam Rivers, phenomenal mm. jazz musician. And he, he admired my playing and he invited me to, to play with this ensemble. And I said, but, but Sam, I, I, I thank you so much, but I don't improvise. And he, he encouraged me, he said, you'll, you'll get there. You know, we'll, yeah. And I just couldn't, I couldn't go there. That was a, just at the beginning of the time when I was beginning to emerge as a soloist and mm. I had to put all my eggs in that basket. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really sorry I didn't follow up, I mean, with one of the great jazz musicians ever, but just also the opportunity to, um, to have done that. Um, improvising, again, opens you up to the world of spontaneity. Mm. Um, and uh, Spontaneity is everything, whether you're talking about music that's written on the page or music that's actually improvised. Um, you know, this is one reason why people need to be better sight readers, because mm. that, that helps their sense of spontaneity with the page. Um, but, the, but the act of improvisation really takes that much, much deeper and further Uh, into an area that is frightening for most of us, but mm. very eye and ear opening. Um, 
And uh, I think personally, yes, I think it probably should be a part, at, at the very least, an elective part of a curriculum, but maybe mm. even a, 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 you know, a required part of it to some mm. a semester of it, maybe just at least to dabble in it, you know, mm. would, would uh, help round the musicians so much more. David, last question for today. Um, where where do you see the future of the guitar? So on the one hand, uh, the future of the classical guitar and the classical concert business, but also in the education at music academies. I mean, we talked already about the education, but uh, kind of resume. Where do you see the future of the guitar? Yeah, it's um, this, we're living in a very, very difficult transition time. Um, because of the internet, yeah. um, the internet has robbed us of our old means of making a living mm. from doing what we do. Um, yes, because, you know, not only uh, are recordings now on Spotify and uh, YouTube and so on and so forth, yeah. uh, which from which... Uh, A performer makes nothing um, and has to put out money, to, you know, pay money in order to make a recording um, without any any uh, hope of getting it back. Mm. Um, even uh, concerts are now done online, and though people ought to know and often do know that live concerts cannot be replaced by online concerts. There are more and more reasons to just sit back in front of your big computer or your yeah. big TV screen and watch a watch a concert, you know, mm -hmm. instead of uh, instead of going to the concert. So there is more revenue taken away from us, um, and as a result, we see um, concert series shrinking, mm -hmm. uh, fewer and fewer opportunities for performers. Um, all of which sounds very dark and dreary, and, and in some ways it is. Um, on the other hand, it also, um, the situation holds out a hand to uh, the, the specter of newness. What, what can we do? How can we resourcefully find new ways of making lives as musicians? in order to make money, in order to uh, communicate with as many people as possible, in order to spread what we do in any, in any, in all the ways that we want to spread them. Uh, how, what are new ways, given the new technology, what are new ways that we can find to, to do this? And people are discovering ways of monetizing things and so on and so forth. That's, that's a beginning, you know, it's a, As I say, it's a transition mm. time. Um, so it really, it's not up to my generation, if I may say to our generation, more or less, mm. uh, to, to make these changes, really. It's up to the youngest generation. They're the ones who have to find the new ways. They're the ones who are savviest about the new technology and will continue to be savvy about that. Uh, And as the newer generations come up, again, it falls to the youngest generations to find what's, uh, what, are, what are the answers for the new, the new uh, uh, dress of, what can I say, the, the new appearance of music, mm. whether it's concert music, classical music, jazz music, whatever it is. Um, you know, pop music will always have its audience, and I don't doubt that they'll be fine. But uh, classical music, jazz musicians, and so on—they um, need to—they need to to figure this out. And by the way, this this reminds me of one thing that I neglected to mention earlier when we talked about curriculum. If you don't mind my going back to that for two seconds, not at all. The, the talk of diversity these days is really important. Uh, there, there is a lot of music that has been undervalued 
by people because of the color of the skin, mm -hmm. um, and uh, or or because they write a kind of music that doesn't fit into the same uh, parameters uh, of normal classical music. These avenues need to be explored and need to be included in a curriculum. Mm -hmm. So the curriculum that involves inclusion um, is very, very important. Without sacrificing the integrity of the great music, I think that one can bring in uh, the great music of today that may be written by people that are of a different color skin than than yours, or your color skin is not being represented by that person, uh, by by the ones that are being studied. So bring in the people who are the same color skin as you, and you know, let's celebrate diversity. I think that's very very important in in curriculum. So. Thank you, David, for for all the nice insights in your in your work and and um, your experience and um, many thanks that you took the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Heiko. Thank you for having me on your series, and uh, I, I loved your questions. Thank you for those lovely questions. You were listening to the latest episode of the podcast series Guitar Talk. Host was, as always, the Hamburg concert guitarist Heiko Ossig. We would be very happy about a comment to the podcast. If you like this talk, please subscribe to our series and recommend it to others. You can find more episodes of the podcast series Guitar Talk on the usual podcast streaming platforms and, of course, on Patreon at www.patreon.com patreon.com slash Heiko Ossig.